Welcome to Do We Know Things, a podcast where we examine things we think we know about sex. Content warning. This podcast includes discussions about sex, genitals, and medical procedures. Hi, everyone. I'm Dr. Lisa Don Hamilton, professor of psychology and sex educator. Today on Do We Know Things, there's no such thing as the G-spot. You have likely heard of the Grafenberg spot, or G-spot as it's more commonly known. The G-spot has had some pretty good PR since it was named in the 1980s, and it's really become a household name. But what if I told you there's actually no such thing? Cosmopolitan magazine even published a web story in 2020 apologizing for ever promoting the idea of the G-spot, so you know it's real now. A combination of misunderstanding the bodies of people with vulvas and the continued influence of Freudian ideas about orgasms has led to a bit of an obsession about the G-spot. There have been innumerable books and articles and videos telling us how to stimulate the G-spot for mind-blowing orgasms. In the research world, there have been studies in people both living and dead looking for this elusive spot. On this episode of Do We Know Things, I'll explore the history of the G-spot, explain why it's not a thing, and tell you about my own G-spot phobia. That's coming up on Do We Know Things. But first... On the last episode, Time to Get Aroused, I went in search of evidence for a stat that says cisgender women take 20 minutes to get fully aroused. I looked specifically at research that measured people's arousal. I didn't find anything that supported the idea that there's a set amount of time needed to get aroused or that there were any major sex differences. I put a call out on Instagram and a few people said they had heard of it, but no one seemed to know where it came from. Fast forward to working on today's episode of the podcast, focusing on the G-spot. The first book I picked up was Getting Clitorate by Dr. Lori Mintz. And wouldn't you know, right there in black and white, in a chapter aimed at men who want to have sex with women, she states, quote, Most women require about 20 minutes of fooling around before you even reach between her legs. It takes most women that long to get aroused, unquote. There is no reference for this information, but the chapter opens with a quote from the book She Comes First by Dr. Ian Kerner. I thought maybe that book, which is aimed at heterosexual men, might have more info on this 20-minute stat. In She Comes First, Kerner also mentions 20 minutes as being this magical number, and he references Kinsey. With a bit of digging, I found a paper that aligned with the data in She Comes First— The paper was published by Paul Gebhard, who was part of Alfred Kinsey's groundbreaking sex research team. Kinsey and his team were famous for interviewing large numbers of people all across the U.S. and gathering tons of detailed information from them. In 1966, Gebhard published a paper that looked specifically at the link between orgasm rates and foreplay in college-educated, white, happily married women. Let me first say that I hate the word foreplay and generally will not use it. It devalues everything other than penetrative sex by making penetration the main event and everything else just a sideshow. I'm going to use it here because the researchers used it. 
So in the many interviews done by Kinsey and his team, they asked a lot of questions about foreplay. In this specific paper, Gebhard looked at data from when they asked people how long was spent on foreplay during their sexual encounters, on average. So specifically meaning sexual things done before intercourse began. They then grouped the foreplay time into 1 to 10 minutes, 15 to 20 minutes, or more than 20 minutes. They found that for the women who reported they usually engaged in 21 minutes or more of foreplay before intercourse, about 60% of them reported that they almost always had an orgasm. That was compared to 40% of those in the 1 to 10 minute foreplay group. So it's possible that this information is the source of that 20 minute rule, but it doesn't seem that convincing considering only 60% of women getting the maximum amount of foreplay were having regular orgasms. Additionally, there were more women who said they never had an orgasm in the 21-minute group compared to the 1-10-minute to 10 minute group, so definitely not that convincing. I decided to look more into the foreplay aspect and found another paper that was referenced on the internet, which was a 2004 study that found heterosexual men and women both reported that their ideal amount of foreplay was between 18 to 19 minutes. This also might be a source of the idea that it takes women 20 minutes to get aroused, but clearly there wasn't a sex difference and they weren't asking about arousal. So my conclusions from the last episode have not changed. There is still no evidence that it takes women 20 minutes to get aroused, but I have identified two possible studies that may be the source of the erroneous stat. Now, let's look at some more erroneous info about vaginal anatomy. As I mentioned at the beginning of this episode, there's no such thing as a G-spot, at least not in the way that it's a discrete part of the body. However, the name G-spot is just so easy to use as a reference. I feel like I'm doing the world a disservice by using that word, but I can't think of an easy shorthand to use as an alternative. So for now, I will stick with G-spot. To be clear, Many people, when aroused, experience increased sensitivity in response to stimulation on the anterior wall of the vagina. So that's the part of your vagina on the stomach side of your body. But it's not the anterior wall of the vagina itself that is increasing in sensitivity. It's other parts of the body that I'll explain later in the episode. First, I thought it would be relevant and perhaps amusing for me to share about my G-spot phobia. Well, it isn't exactly a phobia, but more of a squeamishness. Hearing about or reading about G-spot-related things, or really anything that involves targeted pressure in the vagina, makes me woozy. It's actually kind of hilarious. Interestingly, I'm fine to talk about it, write about it, or participate in G-spot stimulation. If I'm actively involved, apparently G-spot things are fine. It's when I'm passively taking in information that I start to freak out. I can't explain it. I first realized this problem when I worked on the sexual health phone line. Between calls, we were encouraged to read the reference materials and the many sex-related books on the shelves. Whenever I read about G-spots, I would feel uneasy and queasy. Sometimes it even made me gag. If someone called and asked questions, I had no problems talking about it. I can't tell you how many times I described how to do G-spot stimulation over the phone. You insert your pointer and middle fingers a few inches into the vagina and make a come here motion, curling your fingers toward the belly side of the body. See? No problem. 
One time in grad school, I was at a conference and a researcher was presenting their study of a dissection of a cadaver, trying to identify the location of the G-spot. The researcher showed slide after slide of various cadaver slices. I felt woozy and I started to giggle and I felt like I was going to faint. One of my friends had to help me out of the room because I was just so loopy. Shortly after that incident, I asked a friend of mine who was an expert in cognitive behavioral therapy treatments for anxiety if I could be treated for my G-spot phobia. It just seemed so absurd to me that someone who studied sex for a living couldn't handle reading about G-spots. He said it was possible, but that squeamishness is a bit different than anxiety and actually harder to eradicate. He suggested a possible person to treat me, but I never followed up. So here I am today, a sex educator who gags when she reads about the G-spot. You can imagine how challenging it was for me to read a ton of stuff about G-spots for this episode. I hope you enjoy it because it was torture to create. Okay, so everyone who talks about the G-spot in research refers back to a short article by a physician named Ernst Grafenberg published in 1950. You might remember Grafenberg's name from episode 12, The History and Mystery of IUDs, because he invented a version of the modern IUD. His paper that is referenced whenever people talk about the G-spot is called The Role of the Urethra in Female Orgasm. Now, I have seen reference to this article many times in my years as a sex researcher. I always thought it was an anatomical study. I didn't actually read it until I was researching this episode, and it was not at all what I expected. It's basically an MD describing his thoughts on women's frigidity. To be fair, he was challenging the concept of frigidity and saying that women weren't frigid if they could only have clitoral orgasms or if they got super aroused when fooling around but didn't orgasm from penetrative intercourse. He also talked about the usefulness of sticking a finger in a woman's butt to help her have an orgasm. So seemingly pretty progressive for the 1950s. About the area that would come to be known as the G-spot, he describes it from personal experience, and on first read, I truly thought he was describing his own hookups. He refers to another researcher's work that talked about the work on sensitivity in the anterior wall of the vagina, and then says, quote, This I can confirm by my own experience with numerous women, unquote. Doesn't that sound like he's describing his own sex life? Later on, he mentions the women he was testing, I guess for research, and says about them that an erotic zone could always be demonstrated on the anterior wall of the vagina along the course of the urethra. This whole paper really only has two to three sentences about this area, and then it's mostly ignored for the next 30 years. It wasn't until 1981 that the G-spot was given its name in a paper by another group of researchers. In this paper, they describe a case study of a woman who regularly ejaculated. This woman came into the lab, stimulated the area described by Grafenberg, and ejaculated many times over multiple visits. The researchers watched and video recorded the ejaculations, and they verified that the fluid was coming from the urethra. They also collected the fluids expelled during orgasm, as well as multiple urine samples from the participant, and definitively said that they were two different liquids based on visual, taste, and chemical analysis. I'm not going to get into female ejaculation much in this episode, other than to note that there has been an ongoing debate in the research literature about whether or not ejaculate is pee. 
And OMG, it is not pee. People with vaginas who ejaculate have said again and again and again that the fluid that comes out during orgasm is different than pee. But, of course, no one wants to listen to women, so there are these ongoing research debates. It does seem that during orgasm, there are two different types of fluids that might be released. A high-volume, mostly clear fluid that does seem to come from the bladder region, and a smaller-volume, more viscous fluid that seems to come from the periurethral glands, which are also called Skene's glands or the female prostate. After the 1981 naming of the G-spot, researchers Alice Lattice, Beverly Whipple, and John Perry published a book in 1982 called The G-Spot. This book is what really created all the hype, bordering on cultural obsession, about the G-Spot. In her book, Becoming Cliterate, Dr. Lori Mintz argues that the obsession over the G-Spot that happened right as the importance of the clitoris was coming into more mainstream cultural understanding really set us back into the Freudian worldview. Freud has infamously claimed that clitoral orgasms are immature and that only vaginal orgasms are the sign of a fully developed woman. We were finally getting out of the pathologizing of clitoral stimulation when the G-spot excitement brought us back to obsessing over how to get orgasms from vaginal stimulation. In the G-spot book, the concepts of clitoral orgasms, vaginal orgasms, and blended orgasms, which is having orgasms from stimulating both the G-spot and the clitoris, was presented. And that language kind of stuck. Because it was in the vagina, and that aligned with the male-centric ideas of how sex should work, G-spot orgasms became the thing to strive for. It was also a performance-related thing. In the popular understanding, perpetuated by porn and magazines primarily, the search for the G-spot and making her squirt was defined as the pinnacle of good sex. Okay, so here's what we actually know. First of all, many people enjoy having the anterior wall of their vagina stimulated. Many people can orgasm this way. But there is no specific anatomical structure that is the G-spot. In the pelvic region, there are a lot of things. It's likely that multiple areas are being stimulated when we rub on the anterior wall of the vagina. The urethra has spongy tissue around it called the corpus spongiosum. There are periurethral glands, aka the female prostate, parts of the clitoris, and a whole whack of nerve endings. One or all of these things is likely being stimulated when people use hands, toys, or penises to stimulate the anterior wall of the vagina. The anterior wall itself likely isn't a major contributor to these sensations, but it is what lies beyond that feels good. For some people, when they are aroused, there is a distinct lump or ridge when feeling the anterior wall. And for others, there isn't necessarily something they feel, but the stimulation still feels good. It's important to note that any bulge or bump felt only emerges when the person being stimulated is aroused. If you just stick your fingers in a vagina in the middle of the day while working on a spreadsheet, you won't feel much. When we get aroused, the whole pelvic region gets vasocongested, so everything grows as it becomes engorged. Arousal can also lead to the enlargement of the periurethral glands. In the search for the G-spot, there have been a number of cadaver studies, most of which have not found any distinct spot. 
except one study where a male researcher claimed to have identified a small sack in the cadaver of an 83-year-old woman that he claimed was the G-spot. But since there is no specific spot, it doesn't really make sense to look at a cadaver. In order to figure out what's being stimulated, we need to see an aroused pelvic region. Researchers who have done imaging studies of genitals, aroused and non-aroused, have pointed to all of the components I've noted as being within the vicinity of being stimulated. A proposed name to describe what's actually being stimulated is the clitoral urethral vaginal complex, or CUV. But as you can imagine, that hasn't really caught on. Even Beverly Whipple, one of the people credited with naming the G-spot, has said she never meant for people to think that there was just one specific spot or it was this specific anatomical thing. The term G-spot was just shorthand for the many structures present in that part of the body. She was also more interested in understanding and normalizing female ejaculation than she was with the G-spot. As our understanding of this part of the body grows, some people have pointed out if what is being stimulated is just a different part of the clitoris, then all orgasms are clitoral orgasms. This means there is no need to try to differentiate one type of orgasm from another. So hopefully the orgasm hierarchy can end. One of the sad parts of the G-spot obsession is the harm that it has caused. The popularity of the G-spot and the need to find it for the one true orgasm to rule us all negatively influences people who think this is how they should orgasm but can't. It leads those who can't find this magical spot in themselves or others to feel inadequate, like something was wrong. When we define sex by declaring there is a best way and a right way to do it, we ruin sex. There's just so much variability in sexuality. Variability in what gets us off, in what turns us on, and what body parts we like to have stimulated. The G-spot craze also put the focus on penises doing the stimulation. The easiest way to actually access this area is with hands or with toys that are designed to curve that way. In most positions, a penis will not press against the anterior wall unless it's really short. There are some positions that can increase stimulation in the area during penetrative intercourse, if that's something you're interested in, but it's certainly not a requirement. Also, there's absolutely nothing wrong with you if this type of stimulation does nothing for you or doesn't lead to orgasm. For some people, when they're aroused, stimulating the anterior wall of the vagina feels great, for some it feels neutral, and for some it feels aversive. All of these responses are normal. Unfortunately, predatory doctors used misinformation about the G-spot to prey on insecurities about needing to have one. Cosmetic surgeons have developed injections and implants that can be put into the anterior wall of the vagina, supposedly enhancing the size of the G-spot and therefore your pleasure. But this just demonstrates that they do not understand how the hell anatomy works. There is no spot to enhance. I once peer-reviewed a paper on this technique, and the paper was just a doctor who was like, I injected people with this stuff, and like 90% reported they were more sexually satisfied after. There was no placebo group, no control group at all, and the person doing the assessment was also the person doing the injecting. Truly a useless study. There is no evidence that these G-spot enhancement treatments work, but many people still pay good money for these scam procedures. It's really frustrating to see. There are also academic papers, 
most of which written by cisgender men, arguing that there's nothing at all special about this part of the body. They take the G-spot doesn't exist narrative and just go even further. Some of the papers focus on the harms of the cosmetic procedures I just discussed, but others are kind of rants saying anyone who thinks there's anything going on with the anterior wall of the vagina is ridiculous. They're basically like, there isn't enough evidence, or it doesn't make sense because anatomy. But like, if groups of people with vaginas are like, this is a thing that happens to me, then clearly it's a thing that happens. So another consequence is men, again, not believing women about their own bodies. So the G-spot is not an actual thing, but there are some sensitive bits in the region of the anterior wall of the vagina. It's funny, in that Cosmo article I mentioned at the beginning of the episode, they actually went to the opposite extreme of what Cosmo has been doing for decades and declared they would never speak of sex positions for G-spot stimulation ever again. I think it's fine to still talk about stimulating that part of the body. Just don't frame it as the only thing that matters. Orgasms are variable. Sometimes orgasms are mind-blowing. Sometimes they're great. Sometimes they are just okay. Some people have orgasms from external clitoral stimulation, some people have them from internal clitoral urethral vaginal stimulation, and some people do a bit of both. As I've already said, there's just so much variability in sexuality. What works for one person might not work for the other, and whatever works for you is normal because it's what's normal for you. There really is no need to feel like you have to have orgasms in a specific way. Figure out what you like and go with that. That's all for this episode. If you have any feedback or peer review of this episode, I'm always excited to hear from you. You can send me a voice memo recorded on your phone or just a written email to doweknowthings at gmail.com. You can find a script for this episode with references and extra info on the website at doweknowthings.com. All music and sounds in this episode are by Jeremy Dahl. You can check him out at palebluedot.ca. Script assistance by Matt Tunnicliffe. I'm Lisa Don Hamilton. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Do We Know Things, and you can email me at doweknowthings at gmail.com. Do We Know Things is released every second Monday, and you can find it anywhere you get your podcasts. Of course, I would love it if you could subscribe and rate and review the podcast on iTunes. Thanks for listening. I'll talk to you next time on Do We Know Things. Do We Know Things.